Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Thomas Durant live from the Kintec studio. 650. 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. The hotline is brought to you by Dispatch Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. The first call, the only call. And uh, we will be joined momentarily here by Kevin Woodley from uh, Ingle Magazine and NHL.com once uh, Dom finishes talking his ear off on the uh, on the phone there. But uh, we'll get Woodley on here momentarily. I have no idea what Dom is doing. Having a lengthy conversation with Woodley before he gets him on, on the show. He's got a bone to pick with yeah, Kevin. Apparently, he's uh, he's really uh, getting into it with him. But uh, after we talk to Woodley, we'll have a couple of um, open segments to wrap up the show. So lots of time to dive in to the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, we'll do that in the last hour. And uh, I want to make my Canucks relevant Dan Campbell take to you as well, Drancer. Ooh, so I know I know that's right up your alley. So uh, we'll get into that maybe in the next segment uh, as well. But joining us right now, a presentation of White Rock Hyundai. He is Kevin Woodley. Kevin, thanks for doing this, man. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's uh, it's it's been a busy day. It's all good. Uh, well, thank you for making some time to chat with us. We always appreciate it. And, uh, you know, we'll get into some of the goaltending stuff uh, at some point during the, our chat here, I'm sure. But I did want to start asking you about Brock Besser, who, of course, gets the hat trick on Saturday, gets to that 30-goal milestone officially for the first time in his NHL career. How much of Brock Besser's season do you think is a result of him being different as a player? How much do you think it's just kind of right place, right time for him as a player with this Canucks team? Oh... You know what? I haven't thought like there's there's a little bit of both, right? Like put yep. those hands together, as they say. And I haven't thought about waiting how much is what and how much is the other. Like we've always known that the talent was there, and yet I don't know that it was applied in the same way it is now, right? And we also know, all know the personal things, right? Like I think we've all written about it at various points, including this season, as as this sort of like can you have a breakout when you scored 29 as a rookie? Mm. Like, but you know, it just feels kind of it feels different, and part of that is you know what you mentioned about doing things a little differently and you know the conversations JT sort of reiterated it post game the other night sort of similar to a conversation I had with him earlier this year about you know when he first got here like Brock wasn't really interested in being a net front guy so to speak and now not only is he going there although you know it's interesting like I think in some like not as religiously right not not necessarily him but the power play setup at times has taken him away from there mm-hmm. and i i think part of the power play struggles during that stretch was other guys weren't as effective in that spot as he had been in terms of the way he's managing a goalie's eyes and forcing him to one side and working off some of the shots and then just also being there to bang in garbage and and willing to win those battles in front so i i do think that's an element that has changed um, you know, that's more than just narrative. Guys guys have talked about that being something. He's talked about it. JT's talked about it. And we're seeing, you know, we're seeing him score in different ways than he has in the past. And so the shot remains, uh, and yet he's not reliant on it. And maybe that's the difference between, you know, always pushing up towards 30 and now hitting it, you know, just over halfway through the season is the goals that, the type of goals that weren't part of his repertoire as often early, and, and again, part of that is opportunity and role, um, are there now. 
You know, you talk about his work in front of the net, and, you know, we saw more examples of that on Saturday, getting the hat trick, and it's something that's really stood out. And, you know, as you say, like, part of it is being asked to go there on the power play. Part of it is the appetite and the mentality to go uh, in front of the net. But there's a technique to it as well, right? And, you know, for with your perspective as a, as a goaltending guy, what is it that Besser is doing well to kind of give the goalie such problems? In general, what makes a, a, an effective net front player in that regard? Well, I mean, part of it's still talent. Like, as much as you, you know, can can talk about the willingness to go there, that's not quite the same job it was before. Like, yeah. you know, guys aren't coming up with two-by-fours into your lower back on a consistent basis. Um, but there is still a battle element. But then when you get there, like, like double deflection, like to get a piece of a shot from Quinn that's already been tipped by Pew Suter, you know, like that that's, that's talent, right? Like, you got to be there, but you also have to have skill. I think to me, sort of the learning how to do it. And again, this goes back to conversations with JT uh, about the things he learned from Chris Kreider way back in New York and um, watching Kreider and some of the things that him and Brock talk about. It, it, it It's goalie's eyes and it's strategically taking them away or forcing them to certain sides of the net in specific situations, knowing that they have to find the puck and making them make a decision. Are they going to keep looking short side or do they switch to the middle? Can you time it so that, you know, as you push them to a short side and, you know, like the background here is short side is the preference for most goalies. That's the shortest path for the puck into the net. Most systems are designed for a goalie to find a sight line short side if you have to make that decision. And then you're, whether it's a flexing forward on the PK or your defenseman, like they fill the middle lane. Um, whether it's purposely uh, as part of your systems and strategy, but also just like there tends to be more bodies in the middle. It's more likely to not get cleanly through the net because of um, the amount of traffic there. So goalies are trying to look short side. Now, as a screener, do I want to, if I know that and he's looking over my right shoulder on his right post, can I keep moving just a little bit, a little bit, and force him to make a decision where if he keeps following me to the short side, he's pretty much out of the net. And then if my guys up top are looking for that moment when he switches from, in that case, my right shoulder to try and see over my left shoulder, are you shooting at that instant? Because he's lost the release. And we talked about this with the people being critical of Demko on the Nylander goal against the Leafs. Everything is about seeing the release for a goaltender. Once you take that away from them, there's a lot of guesswork involved um, in terms of finding a puck, finding a lane, whether it hits something. Like, it's just all so much harder if you can't see a release. So, you know, that's one part of it, understanding those dynamics and how to push goalies into certain lanes. And then where it gets really cool is to hear the interplay between them, but whether it's Quinn or JT, where, you know, you push them to the short side. Like I've had goalies in our pro read sessions, like once that guy gets you far enough to that short side post, you have to make that decision. Part of the thought process is, well, I can go back to the middle here because their guy is standing on the short side post, filling that lane now, and he's never going to shoot it at his player. Well, now you've got guys like Brock and JT being like, yeah, if we get him to make that decision, I will shoot it at Brock, and he knows to try and get out of the way because now we've opened up the short side as the goalie shifts. So it's become so hard for goalies because of this interplay. I'm not here to pretend that these guys are the only ones doing it. This is around the league, and it's made it really difficult for goalies to manage traffic. It's you know, it's 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 like it's almost like a living, breathing organism. How these power plays will attack goalies hmm. and screens and traffic lanes, uh, and I just think that they're a part of that. 
I, I don't want to say it's the first time, but certainly I don't recall in the past it being to this degree in terms of the way they're managing and working off goalies and trying to create these lanes and traffic in difficult situations. And Brock's a big part of that with his willingness, yes, but then also his understanding, his hockey smarts of how to manip- manipulate a goalie in that space. Kevin, Brock himself, by the way, will credit JT a lot, obviously, with um, improving his work at the net front. But I'm, I'm curious to get your take on this. What did you think of Vancouver's rush defense in this last week before the All-Star break? I thought they gave up a lot more. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I for the longest time, like, them giving up odd man stuff was just, just didn't happen, right? You know, I'd be honest, I didn't run the numbers on what it looks like this last, but it just felt anecdotally, and I think in the Leafs game for sure we saw it. Um, you know, and some of that is there were times when the lot of line was together, and we talked about this before they were split up, where, it, you know, again, a lot of the rush problems that plagued this team weren't tied exclusively to an inability to defend the rush. They're inevitably, they're tied. And you can go look at the Oilers at the start of this season. Like, mm. Yeah, they made systems changes, and yeah, some personnel struggled defending the rush, but they also turned pucks over in areas that led to chances that it didn't matter who was back. You, you had The other team had numbers because of where you turned the puck over and where guys were relative to those players when they did it, right? You hear a lot about being above the puck. Um, I, I don't want to say like that turned on its ear in any way, shape, or form, but it just feels like we're seeing more of those types of opportunities and did in the last week than maybe we'd, we'd gotten used to seeing through you know, what has been a pretty remarkable first half in, in that regard. What did you think of um, – I'm, I'm curious to get your take too. This is mostly me just gut-checking my own impressions. But did you think Merzlikens was robbing the Canucks in the first, or did you think that their chances were maybe a little bit overvalued by some of the public XG? Ooh, that's a that's that's also a good one because I, I thought he was really good in the first, and yet some of the elements we talk about in terms of you know making goalies move and going mm-hmm. east west and you know still like like you know like I, I think of the one in particular with uh, Besser uh, with his know, back turn right the the, the yeah the yeah the backhand. you know and I'm like that's a hell of a save like he gets across square and controlled and yet the fact that Brock's on his backhand and can't one tee it and sort of delays that you know, maybe take some of the some of the sexiness off that scoring chance, for lack of a better term. So, um, you know, that's a... Uh, Love that's, a sexy scoring chance, Kevin. Uh, yeah, no, as a goalie, <laughs> I probably shouldn't even use phrases like that. But, you know, I have, thrown a, I have talked in the past about goalies getting horny because they're too eager to go get a shot. So, um, it's... Uh, Stupid sexy Woodley. I think Woodley. there's a little bit of both there. Like I, thought, I thought they created chances, and, and Merzlikens was, was better in that first period. Um, but also it, they weren't, my guess is they, they didn't grade out as, as, as good as they looked on the eye test for a lot of those reasons. Um, now Connor Hellebuck's been on like a 940 heater since early December, but Demko hasn't been far behind. And yet the betting markets have moved significantly toward Hellebuck, um, in, as, as the Vesna favorite over the course of the past few weeks. Yeah. Um, do, do you think that's reasonable does Demko still have a shot at this I think he's got a shot at it I think it's smart of the betting markets to hedge that way not and that's not at all based on goalie performance not in the slightest but betting markets take into effect who does the voting right Mm. like 
general managers, not that anybody's looking at Thatcher Demko because he's got a body of work. Um, you know, two years ago was spectacular. Obviously, we know about the injuries last season. And frankly, at the beginning of last season, just how inept they were defensively. Um, so I don't think this is a Jim Carrey comparison by any stretch of the imagination. But forever since then, general Matt, like they want, they want established, right? Like I think it cost Luongo early in his career, business he should have won. Mm. Um, because it was much easier to go with a guy who had been doing it longer in Brodeur. Um, so I get the betting market part. Hellebuck's got one. And the numbers the Jets are producing defensively are remarkable, and goaltenders benefit from that. When you measure individual goalie contribution to team success relative to that environment, Demko still grades out higher, both in terms of expected save percentage and expected goals against. So Recency bias always right. all plays into this, right? And a lot of what Thatcher built up was early in the season, and so he probably, to have a chance to unseat Hellebuck, even if his expected save percentage is five, like his save percentage differential is five points higher right now, and like top ten, whereas whereas well, there's a few small samples in there, but like you know near top five, whereas whereas Hellebuck's top ten, um, even with that context, I think he's going to need another hot stretch mm-hmm. that gets everybody. Whether it's fair or not, I can't say, but he's probably going to need another hot stretch to get back on top of that recency bias at that and that narrative, even though at this point in the season, he's a full five goals above expected better than Connor Hellebuck. Yeah. The movement doesn't really feel to me like it matches the reality of their, of their well, seasons. You know, and, and there's some numbers in there, like Hellebuck's numbers when Winnipeg is up a goal, they're disgusting. Like, it's absurd, man. Like, out of his 15 goals saved above expected, I think 11 or 12 of them are with the Jets, up a goal. And, you know, that points to, you know, some incredible poise as a goaltender. Like, there's a reputation portion of this. And confidence that a team, like, that, the rep is real, right? Like, but also, is it Demko's fault that the Canucks tend to be up more than one more often? Mm. Right? Like, you're almost, in some ways, you're punishing them because they get up two or three whereas Hellebuck's playing under that pressure of only a one-goal lead so much more often because, frankly, the Jets aren't... They've got dynamic parts, but they're not extending leads to the extent the Canucks have, especially in first periods in early this year. So Thatcher hasn't played... You know, there's been plenty of opportunities here in the last little while. Like, you know, the, the shutout... Yeah, like, those were tight games um, where he's had big moments in tight games that we can... Like, he's never going to catch up to the cumulative results of the Jets unless the Canucks stop scoring. And so far, we haven't seen many signs of that. Uh, Woodley, I wanted to ask you about what's going on with the LA Kings as well right now because, you know, I think it was early December they were tied for the Canucks with points percentage and then the Canucks have surged. They've fallen off a cliff. Now there's a massive gulf between the two teams in the standings. And early in the season, Cam Talbot was playing really, really well. The Kings were off to this incredible start. How much of what's happening in LA is about Cam Talbot? How much of it is about just the team in general struggling right now? They go hand in hand, right? This is... This is we we could just replace Edmonton's start with Edmonton's current run, like swap the two, mm. right? Like when when the Oilers couldn't, you know, Oilers couldn't win, couldn't get a save, and everybody was pointing the goaltending. I kept screaming that they were dead last in the league in high danger chances off the rush, thirty second. 
Now, you know, Skinner, frankly, since mid-November, has played at a Vesna Trophy level. Yes, the start won't let him be in the conversation. But guess what's changed? <sighs> the Oilers went from dead last to first in the league in terms of high-danger chances off the rush that they give up. Like, you can only... And, and the Kings were the opposite. So, Talbot, with that structure, is perfect. I think there was a point where he had a 9.30 save percentage. And yeah. He was, he, was at the quarter, he was in the quarter pole Vesna conversation with Demko, right? And when I looked at the adjusted numbers... He was still good relative to environment, but no, like Thatcher was clicking along at like plus six and a half percent. Talbot was plus one, which like ranked in the thirties, like environment matters. And if you're going to be a team that's going to not spend on goaltending, not invest in having a superstar goaltender, because you believe you have the defense to insulate him and Talbot to his credit without performing that environment as long as it's controlled and stable, he's capable. But as soon as that environment erodes and it's eroded, and I can't tell you why, whether it's as, as some of the players themselves suggested, guys chasing stats, trying yeah. to get their, get their cookie, as, 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 as Dowdy said the other night on, when they got out to an early lead, um, or if like we've seen this with McClellan teams too, where they go from being great defensively to not having that defensive discipline or um, that buy-in from the entire group. Those numbers have eroded, and Talbots have gone with it. And so you can chicken and egg it all you want. To me, it only works to do that with your goaltending if you can maintain that environment, and they haven't. And so the goaltending's falling off as well. I'm like not, not excusing the goaltending, but I guarantee you, you don't go into the season saying Cam Talbot's your number one if you were thought you were going to be what they are now defensively. You only do it because mm. you think you have the environment to, to sort of support it and prop it up. That environment's gone, and it's no longer sustainable um, for him the way they're playing. So uh, I point – it's not excusing the goaltenders to point to the environment. It's just explaining it. Yeah. Right? Like, give him that structure, whether it's Corpus Allo last year, Talbot at the start of this year, most goalies are going to have success behind it. Take it away, and now all of a sudden you need heroics in that the way they're defending. And they didn't find a goalie that's designed to be a hurt. You know, he's not designed to be an acrobat. So Woodley, we're running short on time, but I want to bring this up to you because you talked about Stuart Skinner. Me to talk less. Yeah, sorry, bud. Um, <laughs> never, no, never. To, to be to be clear, I just appreciate it when it happens to me as a fellow long-winded dude um, that people are like, "Hey, maybe not this time, bud." Um, Shut this guy up. <laughs> no, the I'm just curious to get your take on this because you're talking about Skinner. You're talking about the Edmonton Oilers' defensive environment. I was looking at it yesterday, and it occurred to me, and I don't think people are ready or prepared for this, but are you ready for the Connor McDavid should be considered for Selkie discourse that's about to unfold? Ooh. You know what? I'm so focused on the goalies that I don't care what you guys do with yourself. <laughs> I'm taking the easy way out, Dress, because I don't have an answer for the, it. The Selkie's um, fake. It's just go to the goalie, right? Well, no, like, <laughs> listen, the, the funny, the ironic thing is, is, again, when they suck defensively at the beginning of the year, like, can you can you be the captain and the top offensive minutes guy on a team that is 32nd against the rush for six weeks of the season and still be in consideration for the Selkie? I even think, if it wasn't you making the turnover, I, I, even if it was other players? I say yes, Provided that you then are the key driver of the best defensive team in hockey for the rest of the season. 
see, then it's a fair argument. Like if that's not, if that's enough, right? Like, cause I look at the same way with, with, uh, Skinner, like Skinner's played on un- unbelievable. Now a lot of it is environment, but let's be honest, most of the people who are doing the voting, shoot, half of them sort of, pardon me, like most of them don't have access to the numbers I have. Like they don't even mm. know how much of it's goalie related and team environment. Like they just don't know. And, um, so like, could he get into the Vesna conversation? My answer was no, because of those first six weeks. And I think that should also be reflected in the Selkie. But to your point, it's a fair argument the other way, because as McDavid goes, not just offensively, like he sets the example. If he's not cheating, if he's backtracking, it, it's much like the Canucks. You can't just – defense isn't great defensemen. It's all five guys. And your top offensive players have to buy into it to set the stage for everyone else. Like like Kopitar does in L.A., like Deneau does in L.A. McDavid has done that in Edmonton. And so if – Ignoring the first six weeks of team results is enough, then yeah, he should be in that conversation. But then maybe I should change my tune about Skinner and the Vesna. Uh, well, we'll leave it there for now. As Drance mentioned, we got to get to break. But uh, appreciate the insight as always, Whitley. Hope you enjoy a uh, week off from covering the Canucks. We'll talk again soon. Clearly, I'm enjoying it too much already because I'm like letting my language slip a little there, boys. It's, I'm, too, I'm in way too casual mode. My apologies. <laughs> it's all right. We'll deal. We'll deal. You were on a break. Yeah. <laughs> Right, have a good one, man. We love you, you bud. That is Kevin Woodley uh, on Sportsnet 650, brought to you by White Rock Hyundai. Visit the showroom on King George in White Rock or whiterockhyundai.com. All right, we will take a break. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Get your thoughts and questions about the Canucks in now, and we will uh, continue to look ahead, dig into some of the other rumors that came out about the Canucks and what they might do at the deadline, uh, and also my Dan Campbell and the Canucks take. That's coming up next year on Sportsnet 650. Catch up on what happened in Vancouver sports with Halford and Bruff in the morning. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. bad cutting it off what a jam so good daisy jones and the six baby dom and if you don't love me now yes your answer you will never love me again all right very good welcome back to not that you ever did dom (laughs) never make the change Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance here. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at DLEAMC.com. We are live from the Kintech studio. Kintech, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, powered by thousands of five-star Google reviews. Sore feet. What are you waiting for? There's a famous Annie Leibowitz photo of um, Fleetwood Mac all lying in a bed. Yeah. Have you seen it? Yeah. 
and someone the other day on Twitter. So you can look it up on Twitter if you want, or on um, Google if you want the uh, visual. But someone said that it was basically Charlie Brown, <laughs> or sorry, um, um, who's uh, who's Willy Wonka? Who visits Willy Wonka's chocolate factory? Oh, his name's Charlie. Charlie. Yeah, Is Charlie that a Bucket. Yeah, well, last name? anyway, they said it was like Charlie from Willy Wonka while he like is working in the child labor factory. Like that's what his grandparents, that's what his grandparents are doing. Hanging <laughs> out in bed. I legitimately had like a 20 minute laugh over that. Charlie earlier. Bucket. Charlie wow. Bucket. Nailed it. Uh, hey, they've earned the right to rest. <laughs> They're <laughs> decrepit and broken. Not like Fleetwood Mac. Big roll doll guy over here. Yeah, I read a lot of roll doll. Yeah, of course. As a kid. Uh, anyways. By the way, how many Char- uh, Willy Wonka movies do we need before we all join hands across Canada? So I saw, apparently, not only has this latest one come out, which blew my mind. And Timothy Chalamet. Yes, yeah. that is it's in theaters. But apparently it's like crushing bo- the box office. It's like, oh, people are into it. People have, And it's like, I haven't heard a single, not a single person say, I've seen this. Not a single person like on social media say, wow, I really liked it. Like, I've heard nothing about this movie. It's made like $700 million or something. Hugh what? Grant, Hugh Grant is a Oompa Loompa. What's know? the thing you always say as a PSYOP? I mean, there's a bunch of things. A like, bunch of things. Adam Fox, a, mostly. This, Adam, Adam Fox, Fox being better than Quinn Hughes. This is a psyop. The Willy Wonka 100%. movie being successful. Pardon me? The, the best part about it, though, is the Hugh Grant in French being like, je joue le oompa loompa. He <laughs> 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 gave a French um, French media interview, and his, his, like, you can tell that his entire acting career, like, coming down to this moment is just, like, crushing looming him. Looming in his head, and he's just like, and it's just like oh man that sucks for you bud that's tough tough times yeah. for Hugh Grant um okay so it's the Canucks bye week which means uh you know we gotta we gotta stretch our wings a little bit here to find uh, some things to talk talk about and you know watching stretch the... our wings yeah whatever I don't know stretch your legs yeah 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 shut up do you stretch your wings <laughs> do birds do. stretch their wings right, Icarus how close yeah, to birds the sun stretch. Do you what do you fly? mean what do you mean they're tucked up against their bodies and then they stretch their wings I've never they unfurl that. their wings yeah unfurl okay sure are they Jamie you're the wind beneath my wings <laughs> thank you Dom <laughs> Anyway, I think you spread your wings. Whatever, whatever, close enough. All Pretty right. sure spread, spread wing postures is what it's called. Okay, yeah, that's great. Yeah, this is some bi week content. This right is peak bi week content right here. All right, so watching open. you also can you open, can open your, your wings. wings. Yeah, no doubt about that. Yep, you 100%. can flap them. Spread Anything your wings. else? Definitely, you can definitely flap your wings. Uh, you know what? I didn't didn't know enough about it. Oh, apparently, birds also use their wings to sun. Hey, stretching! Widespread wings release tension after flying or sleeping. Birds stretch their wings to improve circulation and help their muscles to relax if a bird has been settled in one position for too long. Birds. Just like us. They're just, they're like, just us. like us. I also stretched <laughs> when I've been was, in a position for too long. I was trying to clip your wings. I was trying to clip your wings, but yeah. you were right. Stretch your wings. Okay. That's right. Fly, Let's Jamie. Fly. Fly. <laughs> All right. Well, sorry. His last name's Dodd. You can legitimately use the John Glenn quote from Hunt for Red October, which is fly, big D, fly. <laughs> All right. In are, ref- we g- are we going to do this? Referring to the USS Dallas, of course. Yes. Stretch of course. Your wings, baby. So. How many times have you seen that movie? <laughs> uh, like once. I'm more of a Crimson Tide guy. What? Roll Tide. Yes. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. My goodness. Okay. Me and sorry. Nick Saban. Big Crimson Tide guys. Sorry. I'm. I'm. I've interfered with you stretching your wings. I mean, I don't long. really care. We got to fill the time somehow, so it's fine. This is as good as anything we're going to do. But anyways. I'm just squirreling the segment. Watching 
Conference Championship Weekend, as I know, of course, you were, uh, speaking of being in one position for a long time, <laughs> I know you were there on the couch watching uh, NFL's Conference Championship Weekend and watching the Lions lose to the 49ers. <laughs> what do you mean you know I watched the games? <laughs> I was sneaking suspicion. Yeah, you're right. Um, watching the Lions lose to the 49ers in the NFC edition, but then also watching the dreaded discourse. The discourse was bad. Happen after and still happen today right and if you if you didn't watch the games here's what it is dan campbell coached the detroit lions up big they have two this centers around two fourth and short calls i think it was a fourth and two and a fourth and three arguably three because there was also the one before the half that's fair but anyways the two really in focus uh fourth and two and fourth and three one with a chance to kick a field goal to go up 17 points of course make it a three store game score game they go for it don't get it late in the game uh, or in the fourth quarter, at least, a chance to kick to tie the game, uh, but they go for it to try to extend it and try to score to take the lead. And they lose by a field goal is an important yeah. part they of They lose 34-31. to 31. Yeah. Ultimately, now, obviously, this brings out the, oh, my gosh, what was Dan Campbell thinking? How do you not kick to make it a three-score game? What? Analytics run amok in the NFL. And that's a whole other side of it that I think is just completely ridiculous that maybe we can get into. The idea that this has like anything to do with analytics and Dan Campbell. But what it reinforced for me, and I'm always a little surprised and disappointed, but then I remember, oh yeah, I knew this, is that a lot of people in sports, people who work in sports, people who coach, people who play, people who broadcast, people who are fans, people who watch, are fundamentally scared. <laughs> They're scared to compete, as Logan Roy would say, right? Because, yeah, you know what Dan Campbell wasn't going to do? He wasn't going to play it safe. And that's fine. If you're only worried about minimizing risk and not making yourself look bad, then yeah, you go out there and you trot your field goal kicker out there. And even if he has a bad record, a really bad record uh, on kicks from that distance, if he misses, As their kicker does, everyone is blaming the kicker and no one is blaming the coach. And you can successfully avoid blame for those things. But it, it actually reminded me a lot of what Jim Rutherford had to say when he was giving his press conference after signing an extension with the Canucks about the risks of going for it at the deadline and the risks of not going for it at the deadline. We focus so much on the risks of the aggressive decision or what is perceived as the aggressive decision, right? Oh my goodness. Oh, what's going to happen? If you don't get it, you're going to give them so much momentum and your players will be so discouraged. Oh no, you can't do it. You got to play it safe. Oh, it's so scary to go for it. But nobody ever takes into account the risks of not going for it, of not being aggressive, right? And I think in Dan Campbell's case, when you think of the Detroit Lions, how did they get to the NFC Championship game? They got there by from the moment Dan Campbell got hired in Detroit, he's made it his MO to be aggressive, to have that swagger, to have that confidence. You're telling me biggest game of the year, biggest game the Detroit Lions have been in in decades and he goes out and completely changes his mindset that that's not going to have a negative effect on his players. Biggest play call of the year, and all of a sudden he decides to start coaching scared. And you think the players are going to be fine with that? It's like, oh, okay, that's fine. Yeah, we're just we've done it this way for multiple seasons now in a row. It's gotten us here. But yeah, whatever. Let's just let's just be really, really conservative and safe from this point on. That's a tremendous risk to take at that point in the game. Yeah, look, it didn't work out because there's no foolproof way to win on the road as a significant underdog in the NFL playoffs. There's always going to be risk. There's always going to be downside. But you can't look at it just because one of the risks materialized and say, well, therefore, it was the wrong decision. 
And it reminds me a lot about the way we talk, some people talk about it in this market with the Canucks, where it's, you know, look at Boston last year. They made those big trades and they lost in the first round. And uh oh, what if you if you make a trade and it upsets player chemistry where you're really going to regret it? Or what if you lose in the first round? We always look at the potential downsides to try to justify the the timid, the conservative approach. We never think about the potential downsides of the conservative approach. We never think about the potential upside of the aggressive approach. And, you know, Dan Campbell, I thought, to his credit, said after the game, I don't regret those decisions. I think that's exactly right. That's the exact attitude he has to have. And I think Jim Rutherford, as we've heard from him, he has an MO. It's being aggressive. It's recognizing when he has a shot to go for it and going for it. I think he's going to do that, and I don't think he's going to regret the decision if he, if it doesn't work out either. Well, and he, he shouldn't. He said specifically he wouldn't. Now, yeah. the thing is, to illustrate your point better, right? Who was the winning coach on Sunday in that game? Kyle Shanahan. Mm-hmm. Okay? I don't know if you um, – I don't know if how many, many people will remember this, but the 49ers four years ago, right before the pandemic actually, blew mm-hmm. a massive lead to the Kansas City, the Kansas Chiefs, City Chiefs team Chiefs. that yep. they'll play again. Um. And on their very first drive, right, uh, from a fourth and five from the Chiefs' 20-yard line, Shanahan kicked. Quote-unquote took the points as if nothing can go wrong on a field goal attempt. Mm -hmm. Then, with the Chiefs driving inside the two-minute warning at the end of the first half, Shanahan didn't use his timeouts. So when the Chiefs turned it over, he only had 59 seconds to score. They, They sort of go into the half... Um, tied 10-10. Then he kicks a field goal on a fourth and second from the Chiefs 24 to go up 13-10, right? They end up building a lead and they end up blowing the lead and losing the Super Bowl. Now, those are all the conservative calls, right? Those are all the calls that no one second guesses really, but they can also contribute to a loss. They can also contribute to how a team blows a big lead. Fact of the matter is, is that a overthrown ball bouncing off a defender's yeah, face seriously. into Brandon Ayuk's a great play by Brandon Ayuk, by the way. Um, a fumble by Jameer Gibbs. And in particular, I mean, two Justin Reynolds drops, one on a third down conversion attempt, one on a fourth down conversion attempt, one of the two that people are second guessing. Like, that's the game. That's it. You know, like those are the biggest plays in the game, the games that re- the the plays that really swung it. I don't know the 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 second like the second Dan Campbell decision to go for it for me was like dicey. The first one was a no brainer in my opinion, and yet if you rely on the data, the data will tell you that those are basically fifty fifties. Yep, you're, you're it's it's coach's decision. So. I just find I, I, that that's a separate part from the Canucks take, really, because I don't think for there's sure. really an analytics angle to the Canucks no, decision no, no. to go for it. No, but I think or, you know what I mean. I think the key thing is is like for me anyway, and and to bring it back to the mm-hmm. Canucks, we use data for a variety of things in sports. I lean on it really heavily mm-hmm. because it's what I understand in in some ways better than you know, for example, like how to shoot around a screener short right. side to create a sense of additional traffic against a goalie and turn a. a eight percent shot into a 12 percent shot the way like uh, someone like jt miller one of the smartest guys in the league at doing stuff like that does right like i'm not gonna come on the radio and pretend to talk about the game at that level i don't Mm -hmm. i don't see the game at that level i never will but i do understand regression and and basic numbers and how they apply to hockey and you know 
how they apply to player evaluation or can. Ultimately, though, data doesn't data should never be viewed as being independent of the decision maker. Mm-hmm. Right. And and when it comes to the Canucks at the deadline and these risks here, you know, we we have we evaluate tendencies. We know Rutherford's tendencies are yep. to be super aggressive star level veteran forward. Right. Like that's sort of been my calling card for the Canucks. But, you know, and, and to sort of bring it wider angle lens talking about this market in particular, the names that, for example, Friedman was linking to the Canucks on his Merikit earlier, it's like Gensel, Lindholm, Henrique, like none of those guys are Phil Kessel. None of those guys are Doug White. You know what I mean? Like in a lot of ways, when you look at the players that are, you know, dotting Saravalli's trade board or Chris Johnson's trade board at the athletic, like you're not going to come across a lot of quality. Not at the high end. Does that impact, in your view, how the Canucks should individually, Canucks decision makers should individually sort of use data, history, et cetera, to inform their view of the risks at hand? Yeah, I mean, you have to, right? right? Like, because you can, you know, to say that you should go all in does not mean that you throw cost out the window when you're going to acquire a player, right? If you're going to spend a major asset, it still has to be for a player who is worth that asset. So, yes, ultimately, like, and I mean, we've talked about this a lot. I don't think the 2024 first rounder, like, I could see spending that on a rental because it's not going to be a particularly high pick. And, as you said, the draft class isn't shaping up to be as strong as last year's as well. So, you know, that is fairly easy uh, for me to understand parting with. If you start talking about LeCaramacchi or Villander, then, yeah, I don't see a rental out there where that makes sense. Maybe Jake Gensel, because I really, really like Gensel. But, yeah, the cost has to match what you're getting back. And I do think it's an open question of, okay, it's one thing to say we want to add an impact top six player. Is that player going to be on the market? Because even Jake Gensel, there's no guarantee that he's going to be traded. No, I mean, there's no there's no guarantee that any of these guys are going to be traded. But Lindholm and Henrique would feel like pretty strong possibilities. Gensel is really just speculation at this point. And if he's not out there, and then all of a sudden other teams are lining up to drive up the bidding for Henrique or Lindholm as well, I agree. It probably does change the math. But to me, deciding not to go for it because the talent isn't there right? Or the right piece isn't there. That's very different than just being afraid of the downside. You know what I mean? Which I think is the mentality that so many people get stuck in. And so many people, when we hear the objections to the idea of the Canucks making a trade, right? It's just this this, this preoccupation with the potential risks and the potential downsides and the way it can go bad rather than looking at the ways it could help the team. And, you know, just on Dan Campbell and the Lions again, one of the things that people always say when we're talking about these, you know, analytics driven decisions, right, is, hey, it can't just be about the numbers. You have to look at the context of the game, your team, the opposition, all of that, which, by the way, I think is 100 percent true. But I think that's what Dan Campbell was doing in those instances. Right. He was like, I like our team. I think we had a good chance to move the ball in those situations. I was worried about what would happen if we gave the ball back to the 49ers. Like he was taking all of those kind of soft things into consideration when he was making that decision. And I think the same thing holds true for the Canucks is you look at this and you look at, okay, what if, if the Canucks don't make a move at the deadline, what message is that going to send to the team? And I think that it was, uh, that would undeniably be a more negative message than trading somebody and, and upsetting the chemistry on this team. Well, and then, and then there's the, 
you know, part of what we're talking about with risk and fear, right, is like the the managing for optics, the managing, you know what I mean, for your job sort of thing. Now, the Canucks extended Rutherford. Recently, we expect Alvin to be extended shortly. Like, you know, I, I think in some ways getting that sewn up the when when the Canucks did matters in part because of this, right? We strongly suspect, based off of, in particular, how favorable Vancouver shooting and, and save mm-hmm. percentage have been, right? We should strongly expect that it would be very difficult for the Canucks to maintain their current pace over the balance of the season, even if the team materially improves, right? That's also partly based off the fact that their schedule is going to get more difficult, right? Now, that's not to... I'm not casting shade at what the Canucks have accomplished so much as I'm just pointing out, like... If the Canucks were to maintain the pace they're currently on, right, they'd be, what, a, um, well, a very, like, 119-point team. Okay? So Not all, bad. All I'm saying is, all I'm saying is we're betting the under on, on 118.5, which, by the way, I'm sure Vegas would give you a very, very favorable uh, odds on mm-hmm. if, you, if you wanted to bet the over on that, right? So that's all I'm saying. Now... If you upgrade this team and like meaningfully move the needle on their true talent level, you know, you're still widely likely, NHL history tells us, to finish at like 110 points, 108 points, right? Like to finish at a level where you lose more games over the balance of the season than you have to this point. And then is the conversation focused on now presumably they'd need to dip pretty significantly for this, but does the conversation get focused on things like have they interfered with chemistry? Right, or if you don't, did the players get discouraged about what you did yep. at the deadline? Like, the, the risk comes on all sides, and it's worth pointing out, by the way. This is per Dom Decisions model: games played to date, opponents' projected points for the Canucks eighty-eight. That's tied with Colorado, Boston, for the low, like so, softest schedule to this point in the season. Over the balance of the season, opponent projected points is going to go up to ninety-four. Right, that's going to be the fourth hardest schedule in the league over the balance. To further illustrate my point, right, like it's going to be really hard for the Canucks to maintain this pace because this pace is unbelievable. Yeah, and if they do, they're like a historically good regular season team, which I, hey, I'll be be great for us to cover and talk about. My point being, how does that like expected? reversion to the mean effectively of this team's performance how does that interact too with what they do or don't at the deadline so you're saying like whatever they either do or don't if they do slow down a little bit it's going to be connected to that decision it could be i think it would have to be a very dramatic slowdown you know what i mean i don't think going from even what are you they're on like 118 point pace to even like 102 no, point pace is going win, to is going to seem that jarring if they win three and ten and at, at one point even mm-hmm. if it's like eight points in in yeah 10 games you know what I mean like that's not going to kill them by any means right they can they can afford that and still win the division yeah well 100 percent. they can afford that and still win the division without it being particularly mm-hmm. um like without game 80 against the Oilers mattering potentially so um you know no I'm serious it's true their their lead is wild um I don't know. I don't let that. I'm just saying, I don't let that affect my decision making. No, like you got to try. Nor should, nor should this front office. You got to try to. Make but it your will team impact the, best. the discourse. It will 100. percent Yeah, and that's fine. But like they can't worry about that, and I don't think they are going to worry about. No, that. I don't either. They're going to try to put their best foot forward. But and we make should this be. Team. 
but as we should be trying to get out in front of it well uh, no just as discoursers we should be prepared for it because to to do that take discoursers (laughs) to do that take you know what i mean will be the same as backseat driving dan campbell yeah, for, well, for yeah going they're going to trade for Jake Gensel, and then he's going to have like 40 shots on goal and one goal. And they're like, oh, a super cold slump. And everyone's like, oh, why did they give up this much for this guy? Yeah, um, I just still be a good trade. By the way, a Twitter follower of mine or a guy I interact with on Twitter named Bruce Betts pointed out to me this. The Canucks and Oilers, okay, the next day that they will end the day with the same number of games played is April 15th. Wow. Okay. Um, the gap won't even get to two. Until March 24th, they, the, the Oilers will always have more than two games in hand on the Canucks through March 24th, and it will get as high as six in February. So the Canucks will have six more games played than Evan? That's wild. It's going to take a long time for these teams to sort of come together and have the same number of games played, which is why we really got to focus on point percentage <laughs> in in handicapping this I'm not going to call it race, but potential race. Potential race. It is wild that the Oilers have won 16 in a row and are that far behind the Canucks still. And I know even with the game, you oh, factor yeah. in the games in hand, it gets a lot closer, but it's still a lead. It's still a significant lead. It is truly wild. I'm, I mean, it, you know, it's a uh, even even Dom's model projects it as a three point gap, which is you know not immaterial. At this point in the season, like a three point gap in projected points is big. Yeah. Especially given that the model sees the Oilers as, as the best an, true an talent team, team in the league. And probably a favorite, far and away the favorite to win the Stanley Cup at this point. Oh, yeah. yeah. 5% better Stanley Cup odds than any other team. Yeah. Wow. All right. We'll take a break here on Canucks Talk. Uh, coming up, we'll dive into the inbox. Lots of good text coming in. 650 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. So you can get your thoughts in. Final segment of the show up next here. On Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance here. We are live from the Kintech studio. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Whose world is this? All right. You're really, you are like, and it, look, I enjoy the music on the show. You really enjoy the music on the show, dog. That's a big part of what I do here. <laughs> I guess, I mean, you're the one who chose it. And, uh, you know, Drance and I have our bits. That's true. Bits and bites. Nothing like a good bit. We also. Kibbles. Yeah. <laughs> Kibbles and bits. <laughs> uh, big cat energy. Um, so Big cat energy. I definitely have big cat energy, by the way. Big time. Like big cat is in like a lion or like a big house cat? A big house cat. <laughs> Look, he's got whiskers. <laughs> I definitely, yeah. I have 
I got whiskers. Because big cat energy can mean two wildly different things. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, no. Big cat. I'm en- the king of the jungle. Or I'm like a <laughs> cat who lies in the sun. Or, or, or you like the Broadway show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> big cats guy. <laughs> McCavity has big cat energy. Um, <laughs> or or you could be um, hawking uh, Frosted Flakes. You could have like ah, Tony, yes. the Tony the Tiger energy, energy yeah. Yeah. yeah, which I also don't have. That's like way cool, I've way too cool great. for me. <laughs> nice, nicely done, Dom. Dom's contributions today on point. Uh, absolutely, on except fire. for the for him getting mad at me for my train sounds. No, I was it like mad? Mad is not the right word. You just thought it was corny. It was corny. I mean, it was corny. Of course, it was corny. As, uh, we're doing sports talk, man. <laughs> Radio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so you were. Uh, I wanted to pick up on a point you were making in that last segment about. Okay, yeah, it's one thing to agree in theory that the Canucks are in a position where it's worth going forward, it's worth investing. But the more you look at the rental market, the more concerns you have about the wisdom of that, or at least how much they should be willing to invest in some of those rental players. And, you know, I will confess, like, I've been on the Elias Lindholm bandwagon for sure. I do think, like, the more I dig into a little bit about how he's performing this year, I'm starting to get more wary of that, especially given what he could cost as one of the premier players on the uh, on the market. I'm not saying I wouldn't do it. I just, you know, a little more trepidation than I had a couple of weeks ago. I think I'm still all the way there with Jake Gensel, though, in terms of I don't care if it is a rental, go out, get that player, because they'd be a perfect fit. Where are you and just in the idea of the rental market in general for the Canucks? Yeah, I'm down on it. I'm down on it. Gensel, Gensel, you're right, sort of comes in at a slightly different clip, in my view. Like, he's just a better player than, in my view, the the Lindholm. And Lindholm, like... Lindholm Henrique also belong in different tiers, but yes, you know, I, like I don't know that Henrique is an upgrade on Pew Suter, and in fact, I would fade the idea that he is. Right, Elias Lindholm is definitely an upgrade over all but three players in the Canucks top six. Right, I, I feel confident about saying that, but I don't know that he's like a top of the line driver. Mm-hmm. You know, Gensel is a meaningful driver. I mean, Gensel, I think, could bring a Garland-like impact to the top six, and man, that could Woo. that would be useful, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a piece to pay for, in my view. But given that he's expiring, given that he's 29, you know, I don't know that you should be giving up Volander or LeCaramacchi, especially because I think you need to be really protective of this three-year stretch, which includes this playoff run and two more, mm-hmm. where you've got this Demko-Hughes axis at 12 million, right? Like, that's the spine given the fact that, you know, JT Miller's 30, will be 31 come the playoffs, and and Elias Pettersson's, um, there's uncertainty about his cost at least, right? And and uncertainty around Philip Ronick's. Like, with Hughes-Demko, you've got two elite performers, locked in, highly efficient cap hits. That's the spine of this team's contention window, in my view. And I'm on board given what this team has accomplished this far thus far with them pushing assets in to like take a shot one of those 3 years but i think you have to be really careful about taking a one year shot that might harm what you can do in like year 3 of that especially with the dynamic of like that season you know 
Miller's going to be 33 for the playoffs mm-hmm. and uh, OEL is going to cost four and a half against the cap, right? Like if you have a Volander, even if he's just a third pair guy in your lineup that season, that's huge, especially on an entry level deal. If you have LeCaramacchi and he's a 20 goal scorer, like if he, he and he's playing on your sec in your middle six, even um, on an entry level deal, like that's huge. Those are the sorts of things that can help put you over the top in those seasons, I do think you have to be protective of that. And and that's why if you're going to spend, if you're going to pay retail prices, which you're going to do anyway for a rental, yep. I'd love to see the team use this as an opportunity to buy, like to buy for a, multi, a multi-year piece. It's why like a Pavel Busnevich, if St. Louis decides to sell. And St. Louis is pretty aggressive about selling in years they don't have a cup shot. Now, yep. they've won a lot of games the last week. Um, they're sort of trending in an interesting direction here to make a push for that eighth and final spot. But we've seen Doug Armstrong in the past on years, like even the year right before they won the cup, yep. where he sold. Uh, we saw them last year sell, and they weren't dead in the water, but he sold Tarasenko. He sold one other piece, uh, Ryan O'Reilly, netted a couple firsts. You know, if they were to sell a player like Busnevich, and then you've got a, a guy to stabilize your top six for this year and next, you know, that's the sort of ad that I think is like a far, far greater EV. Like that'll add more enterprise value. That's the sort of bet that I think the can. Now we don't see a lot of names like that linked to the team in rumor reporting in part because teams don't make those decisions lightly, right? Like, yeah, not necessarily early either, right? Like for as much as, no, for as much as we talk about Jim Rutherford and how he likes to get ahead of the market, there, there has to be a trading partner out there. And if you're the blues, and as you said, you're still hanging around the fringes of this Western Conference playoff race, and you're playing a little better, your outlook on Bucinevich could look entirely different a month from now than it does right now. Especially because, uh, you know, in four months, you might be trying to extend him. Yeah. You know, so there's a relationship management angle to consider here, too. But, like, this is the Philip Peronic thing, where Philip Peronic sort of came out completely out of left field. It's yep. not like that was a name rumored to be available, but a team made a decision to change tack with a specific player, and so they shake loose, like... That's the sort of opportunity that I'd like to see the Canucks wait on court. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting tension between the benefits of doing it early and getting your business done early, which, as we've talked a lot about, Jim Rutherford has liked to do historically. And there are reasons for that. You know, you try to get ahead of the market. You give the guy more time to gel. uh, You you run less risk of another team swooping in and getting your target. But as you said, there's also benefits to waiting, which is that. If you don't like, if you're not over the moon about any of the names that are currently available, you don't know what's going to happen between now and the trade deadline. That's still a lot of room to run here, a lot of race to run uh, and see which other guys could become available. Yeah. And like one guy, you know, who was in a lot of rumors a year ago and this past offseason, and then it's been quiet around them. And this team's probably at like a fringe contender level. The Carolina Hurricanes have both Brett Pesci and Brady Shea mm-hmm. expiring, right? Um, I far prefer Pesci, so does the league. But, like, that's a guy who, if, you know, first of all, Rutherford was involved, like, he was drafted during Rutherford's tenure there. He's a right-handed monster, two-way monster. You know, if that was the sort of player who he was going to shake loose, and if you were giving up assets to get him, and you'd probably have to surrender some contractual money to do it, you could talk extension with him beforehand. Yeah. You know, and the, and then, I mean, if you're rolling out a Hughes, Heronic, Pesci, 
blue line for the next three years, I think you're really happy. Like, I think you've got one of the best blue line groups in hockey, right? And and you can do weird stuff with it. Like, you could play Hughes Pesci killing a killing uh, holding a lead. You could do all sorts of different things. That to me would be like the sort of big swing where all of a sudden, if you're discussing one of Vancouver's top prospects, if you're talking about a first and a player off the roster. Mm-hmm. You know, in my mind anyway, that's where you start to sort of consider those items, right? If you're acquiring Chris Tanev, I think Volander and uh, LeCaramacchi have to be, like, well off the table. But if you've got a shot to do, you know, um, like, Mackenzie Weger, right, then that's a different discussion. Yeah. You know? Well, love Mackenzie Weger. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a little worried about that contract. He's already 30, but you know what I'm saying. Like, if it's well, a multi-year piece. But I think that's actually a really interesting point, is targeting a player that a team is motivated to move because they're worried about the contract, but you want them for the next three years. Right. You know what I mean? Because that helps to keep a price down. Like, I don't know that you'd have to give up Karamaki or Verlander to get Weger, to get yeah. Mackenzie Weger because of that contract. I know you've brought up Colton Pareko in the past as well, right? And that contract is scary, but if you're only if you are primarily focused on this year and the next couple of years, like that's one way to get the player with term but without paying an arm and a leg for it. You right. know what I mean? Because a lot of these players and somebody texted it in uh, would you pay whatever you whatever it costs to go get Travis Konechny? We've talked about Travis Konechny. Yes. I think you made him your first pick. Right? Yes. I mean, that, the answer that, is 100%, except that he is in that contractual sweet spot where he's not making too much. He doesn't have too much term. He's just like, he's not a rental, but he's not a long term commitment that scares you. So he's going to be extraordinarily expensive. You know what I mean? And that doesn't mean don't go get him if he's available. He's a really good player. But there's actually, I think. For a team in the Canucks position, if you were prioritizing the next two or three years, you can actually be better off looking at a Uyghur or a Pareko because it brings the price down because teams are scared of their contractual commitments, which is not the case with Connecticut. Yeah, and you know, I think that I think what you're talking about makes some sense, but the general idea, like the the Zegris Konechny, like Pesci, that tier of guy. Uh, you can throw Casey Middlestat mm-hmm. into that group as well. Um, you know, n- like Nashville's a team I'm I'm curious to see what they do because they're very much at the start of like a multi-year exercise here, right? Like um, a guy like uh, North Vancouver's Colton Sissons, right? Right-handed, wins draws, center, like can play center, can play forward, killer, killer penalty kill guy, right? 2.8 or something for the next three years. Yeah, that's a depth, more of a depth add. Though. More of a depth add, Yeah, although sure. that does, that, doesn't that kind of have the uh, the flavor of like one of the Tampa yeah. trade editions, you know what I mean? Like the, but the I'm, Goudreau or... Yeah. I'm cool with that. Like the if you can find your answer to Brandon Hagel, like yeah. that's, that's worth paying a premium for, right? If you, the multi-year run guys are the guys that I think this team should be really aggressive in pursuing. And and the rental market guys are guys where I think there's at least a little bit of buyer beware, even at the level of a Jake Gensel. Just given that, especially the Volander Lakaramaki pieces are guys who you could realistically see helping this team extend this window. Yeah, you know, in the like final years of Hughes's deal, in the in the years where the OEL buyout is most onerous, right? Like those are pieces that can. You know, be like what Br- Brandon Sod and Andrew Shaw were 
to that Blackhawks window where you got two middle six contributors on ELCs who were making a difference for you in the playoffs, and all of a sudden the fact that Taves, Kane, Keith, and Seabrook all got way more expensive all at the same mm-hmm. time was something the team could manage, right? Like that, if you're if you're trading one of your best pieces, especially those guys, you really need to be protective, I think, of the latter stages of what I see as like a, a relatively present and relatively brief competitive window. This text comes in uh, along the lines of looking for impact players with a little bit of term. Uh, would the Canucks ever consider absolutely loading up on D, trading uh, whatever it takes, or he says, you know, Kuzmenko first prospects to get Jacob Chikrin, who's at 4.6 for two more years. It's an interesting name. It's They're so loaded on the left side of the blue line right now, and obviously, you know, maybe to do this move, you consider – uh, trading one or two of those pieces, but I'm not d- like does Chikrin move the needle enough for you to be kind of that type of target in terms of guy you go out because he's that high level impact player. I'm a huge Chikrin fan when he's in the lineup. Mm. Like the thing that scares me about Chikrin is the availability. You know, like yeah. I-, I think Chikrin's when he's healthy. His athleticism and his shot, like he's such a good shooter, man. He's such a dangerous shooter from the point, which also does sort of posit, like, would the Canucks be well-suited to use him best, given that he'll right. never play PP1? Yeah. And I think a lot of his value is is tied up in that, in, in my mind anyway. I mean, this is a guy who scored, he scored 14 power play goals in the 56-game season. That's unreal. Oh, sorry, that's five. 14, 14 goals. Power play points. Yeah. But okay. 18 goals yeah. in 56 games. I mean, he's... A sick, sick shooter, but you know the like his games played over the last few years, like forty eight, forty seven. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. forty five this year. He's he's missed some with uh, injury, although not too many. You know, really good player, really good player. I think fringe star level guy, but you know, I don't know if he. <sighs> Yes. I mean, short answer, yes. If you can get Chicker in and the price is right, go do it. He's really good. Yeah. And I guess, is that the type of... It's just risky because he does have a lengthy injury history. Yeah, but I guess if you're looking at it as, okay, can we get availability out of him for the playoffs, mm-hmm. right? And then, okay, hey, maybe he's injured next year, but we don't. that's less concern uh, if we at least get him for this playoff run. Although, betting on a guy with an injury history going into the playoffs is a, a little nerve-wracking as well, I think. What about... Claude Giroux as the Doug Wade answer. That's an interesting one. Right? Like as the as the analogy for what Doug Wade was for the Carolina Hurricanes, Claude Giroux. My my question about Claude Giroux two years left, six and a half. Is and I don't necessarily have an answer for this, but my my concern about this profile of player is what's the where's what's the state of their two way game? At this point in his career. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because I think that's a, such a priority for me is to have somebody to get somebody that really bolsters your top six in a way, you know, you don't have to manage their minutes. You don't have to hide them. You don't have to be really concerned like, oh, no, we can't get them out there against these players. They need to be a, on, on the power play to produce like you want somebody who's going to be an even strength beast for you. Is that closure right now at this stage of his career? That That's my question. I mean, in terms of the pedigree and his point production is still there, you know, 79 last year, 41 in 45 games this year. Like he's still a phenomenally talented player and his career resume says it all. It's just, are you paying a premium for somebody who's like more of an offense only guy at this point? Yeah. I mean, I don't think so. I think there's some defense to his game. I don't know. I don't love the fit personally. Mm-hmm. I'm 
a little skeptical uh, of the fit, but you know it, that would be an interesting one if he decides to move or if him and the team because he's yeah. got a full NMC. Um, but he's got two years left at six and a half, especially if there was some retention involved, right? I mean, that's an intriguing one, right? And that would be in line with like established star forward. Yeah, name plus, option. Plus, it would give the Canucks just a filthy, filthy power play. Yes. Could you imagine? Like, because he's one of the, you know, if I, I often say JT Miller is one of the smartest players I've ever seen operate on the power play. You know, Kucherov, McDavid, like Giroux's a tier below, but he's a tier below. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, he's an unbelievable, like an absolute um, geometric genius, five on four. Yeah, because the other name, in terms of like name brand players, which I think is fair to look at given Jim Rutherford's history, yep. you know, Drew fits that mold. I, a lot of people have texted in about Vladimir Tarasenko, but like my, I'm talking about the concerns about being offense only. That's even more <laughs> a magnified concern with Vladimir Tarasenko. And of course, we also hear from Friedman that they're looking for that positional versatility, which Tarasenko doesn't bring. So I like, I get it from a certain perspective because, hey, bet on talent, bet on that name brand. But it just doesn't seem to fit. I mean, you're trying to replace a guy who's really, really offensively talented, but doesn't do the two-way things you want, right? So, like, priority number one has to be find a guy who does those two-way things that we want. Yeah. Last thing here, like, you know, I we have a texter pointing out that someone uh, on the morning show, one of the morning show hosts, was critical of Zegris. I know you are deeply skeptical. Look, I think I'm less skeptical than Bruff. Uh, who's very skeptical, I believe, of yeah, Zegris. fair enough. Because I just don't want to do it for this playoff run. Uh, fair enough. I if understand. you told me they traded for him at the draft and, like, full-court press to get him playing the right way and, like, leaning on all the relationships, hey, I'm in. Yeah. I just, like, I do think it's worth noting, right, that when you think about recent Stanley Cup winners, there's usually at least a guy who they were able to go get because there was some, you know, usually substantial reason why they were available, right? Mm. So, like, you think about Vegas with Eichel, obviously, yep. but think about Colorado with Kadri. Like, yep. Kadri got suspended every single playoff run, and there was real concern about whether he could be depended on when the emotional stakes of the game were raised. That's why he was available to Colorado for Barry Kerfoot plus, right? Tampa's sort of a different matter right they just like identify the really good super competitive undervalued one million dollar guys that's their that's their particular bucket mm -hmm. that they like to shop in but the blues ryan o'reilly like people forget when the, when the buffalo sabers traded ryan o'reilly like just how much noise was around him right he was talking about things like retiring he'd had the incident uh with the uh inebriated driving at, mm -hmm. at tim hortons on and on like most teams have to take a swing on a talented guy who you might be worried about for some, you know, absolutely reasonable reason. And and that's the opportunity, like, that I think the Canucks, like, I, I do think you should pursue something relatively high variance here, especially if you're paying for it, and ideally something locked in. I would say, though, how many of those were deadline moves, right? Because even, I don't think any of them. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do think summer. there's something those to be are said for... Moves. We're taking this swing, but we're giving ourselves the runway to work out the kinks. Yep. You know what I mean? And make sure it is a fit and get get everyone on the same page. Like, I, I hear you with, is the talent just too much to pass up on Zegers? I totally get that. It just makes me very, very nervous going in uh, to the trade deadline. Th that close to the playoffs. I can appreciate right? that. I don't know. But um, 
you're right. Like sometimes, if if an, a, a really really good player is undervalued for other reasons, you take that swing. It can pay huge huge dividends uh, for you at some point. Six fifty six fifty here. Final couple of minutes on the show. Uh, this text came in. How imperative is it for the Canucks to trade for a scoring winger for Petey to convince Petey to re-sign with the team? Oh, man. Are we really going through I, this again? I don't think that enters into it. Look, does the team winning in the playoffs increase Elias Pettersson's chance, chances of staying? I can't answer that because I don't know what's in his mind, but it can't hurt. So you do it from that. For, for that perspective, it helps. But that's not why you're doing it. You're doing it because you want to win. And any reaction Elias Pettersson might have to that is a bonus. It's not the driving force. You don't say, oh, we got to get this player to please Elias Pettersson. You do it so the team has a chance to win. Yeah. Uh, look, if we knew what would please Elias Pettersson, <laughs> or if the team did, right, surely they would be more advanced in terms of extension talks at this point. You know? If it was that straightforward. But, man, the amount of people who confidently were like, well, if they don't extend Kuzmenko, you know, it's like, does, I don't know what matters to him. I, I don't. So let's not overfit, you know, this mind reading ability that Canucks fans seem to have yeah. about their star player. The team's done what they can. They've put themselves in, they've given themselves a chance to win with this player and take that shot, sort it out in the summer. That's clearly what he's indicated his preferences is. And until that changes, I think we should just wood with that as our working theory. The iconic Coors Light Chill Train is heading to Las Vegas for the big game, and it just made a stop in Vancouver, what? leaving behind a trail of epic prizes. A trail of prizes? On February 1st and 2nd from 8 a.m. Is that in addition to the, to the dead bodies? Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Look for its frozen tracks at Robson Square Choo -choo. for a chance to win instant prizes that deliver big game day chill or the ultimate grand prize, a trip to next year's big game event, Learn more at CoorsLight.ca slash The Chill Train. That's all for us. We're back tomorrow here on Sportsnet 650.